From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and I would like to do this show with the springboard of something that listeners sometimes have twitted me about, and it is the difference between lie and lay, which I openly admit I really do not observe in my colloquial speech. And so it feels perfectly normal for me to talk about I'm laying on the floor and I see a spider on the ceiling. That works fine for me. I can talk about how you might want to lie that spoon down and go take a look at what's going on out the window. That all feels perfectly right to me. I intellectually know that the idea is supposed to be that you just lie there, but you lay something down. But, you know, I never really picked it up from people around me, including the educated ones, and it always seemed that meaning was clear. I just learned later that there's this blackboard rule that you're supposed to observe, and I know that I'm not alone. The truth is, it's a funny little part of the grammar. There's another pair like that where we have less trouble, because the two actions referred to are so much more graphically different, rising and raising. So a bubble rises all by itself, but then you raise something up with your hand. We don't have trouble with that. Notice lie, lay, rise, raise. But then if you think about it, there's another one, sit and set. So technically, technically, it's supposed to be that you're sitting in a chair, but you set the vase down on the table. Go set that on the table. Now, now you might say that, but you might not. Go set the vase on the table. Nobody gets smacked on the back of the head for saying that. What is this? This, this business of these pairs of verbs where we learn at a certain point that we often use them wrong and we feel a little self-conscious. Well, it used to be that you didn't have to ask because it was part of a larger pattern that you couldn't miss. So there wasn't only just lie and lay and people yelling at you about it. There was lie and lay and rise and raise and sit and set and fall and fell. For example, something's falling, but then you fell a tree. But there were more. There was drink and drench. And so to drench something is to make someone drink, just like to set something is to make something sit. You get it? It used to be that there was a rule. And the rule was that you changed the verb's vowel to something like a or e when it was about causing something. But the problem is that that basic alternation is no longer anything regular or even common. It's just leached out of the language. And so we have things like to clean something and to cleanse something. And cleansing something isn't necessarily to make it be cleaned or something like that. It's just all so flabby at this point. And so, you know, clean, cleanse, what's the difference? Lie, lay, what's the difference? What we're talking about is that that business of changing something to e or a when you're causing it, it's a fossil. It's one of these things in the language that used to be there, but now there's just some raggedy remnant of it. And the reason that we can't master it is because it's no longer a rule. It's no longer alive. It's just some nub. And the thing is, there are a lot of fossils in English and other languages, and they always tickle me. It's nice to get these little look-back things. Even if you do get smacked on the back of the head sometimes, it's just fun to know that not only are there ones like lie and lay that happen to have gotten attention and that people develop feelings about, but there are things where you wouldn't even know, things you'd never notice that are also fossils in the language. So in this show, I just want to give you some more of them to give you a sense of how bedecked 
language is with fossils. And of course, the real upshot of all of that is language is always changing. The language that we're speaking now is one step in a long, long timeline of something that's always morphing like all that junk in a kaleidoscope. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What do I mean by fossil? Well, here's something. Talk. Just that ordinary, boring verb. So you're talking. That originally comes from tale, as in to tell a tale. Now, it's already fun that when we say tell, what we're really using is a word that meant to count, as in a bank teller. The reason that we talk about telling a story, that came afterward, is that you're enumerating, you're stringing something out, you are presenting something in order. And so you are telling as in telling time, you are a bank teller, you're counting those coins or whatever, and then you can tell a tale. Anyway, tell and tale, same root talk, is tale except with a k. Well, what's the k? What is that little suffix? You can tell a tale or you can talk. You can talk. Well, the thing is, that k suffix is in lots of other places. We just don't think of it as a suffix because now it's no longer alive. It's just a nub. So you can hear something and then you can hark to something. Notice that harking is a kind of hearing. It's, it's hirk, basically. You can steal. You can stalk. You can steal away, for example. Steal. Stalk. Stalking is a kind of stealing. You see the relationship, or at least you see that there is one. You can smile, you can smile, except we say smirk because L and R are always in a kind of a sexy alternation. Smiling, smirking. There's a mire, there's a mark, there's a murk. Always the k. What exactly is that? Now, in some places, it's a little bit more vibrant, and it's the suffix uck. And that one is not one you can add to new things. But for example, a hill, then there's a hillock. I guess that's a little hill, or there's a butt, and then there's a buttock, which is part of a butt. But this k is just k. And if you look at what's going on with tail and talk and hear and hark and steal and stalk, if anything, the k seems to make something a little bit more intense. And so we can imagine that that was a living suffix in a very earlier stage of English, actually when it wasn't even English yet. And now the K is just frozen onto the end of these words. And so we don't even think of it as anything. But talking, harking, stalking, smirking, and murk all have the same ending because that ending actually used to mean something. So that is a classic example of some fossil in the language. And so lie lay is just like that. And if we know that there are things like this k, you know, utterly meaningless and it's just kind of there, 
then we can look a little more closely at the lie lay business because actually lie and lay is just a symptom of something much larger. There's a grand fossil in English and we have to pull the camera back to get a sense of it. What I'm talking about is, for example, strong, strength, whole, health. Those words are related. You're whole, you're entire. Well, that means that you're healthy. Health, whole, health. Pretend that both of them begin with huh, because they do. Old, elder. You can say older, but there's also elder. Then fall and fell. So you can fall down the steps or you can make a tree fall and you fell it. Book, bake. That's what the plural used to be. We say books now. It used to be book, bake, just like foot, fate, except we pronounce it feet. All of that is the same thing. All of that is based on one fossilization process, except now we can't even see what the original situation was. And what I mean by that is, well, you know, the way to get it across is you have to know how vowels actually work in your mouth. So what we're going to do is this. I'm going to say E and so are you. Do it. Now I'm going to say A. Can you do that? E, A. Notice that the A is lower than the E. Okay. Now. I'm going to say ooh, and so are you. Now I'm going to say e, ooh. And you just did too. Notice that the ooh is further back and more to the point. If I go ooh, oh, the o is lower than the ooh. And so e, a, and o, ooh are the same relationship except e, a is in the front and o, ooh is in the back. Okay? So if you know that, then if you think of that going on in your mouth with an I up there in the front and then an E below it and then over in the back palate region is an OO and then below that is an O. Well, that means that let's look now at say strong and then strength. Okay, strong is over there in the back. It's a kind of an O, OO, strong. But then strength is up in the front. Hole in the back, health, in the front. Let's make health talk like that. Old in the back. Elder is up in the front. Fall. That's a round backity sound. Fall. Bell. It's up in the front. Aw. Eh. Book is in the back. Bake, if that were still the plural, is up front. All of them are going to this A sound. And so, lie, lay. It's the same sort of thing. Or, rise, and then raise. All of them are doing that. And you know why? Well, there's a reason. And you know, I think I (laughs) heard some people's feelings a show or two ago when I said that I don't care about astrophysics and I don't care about the planets. Well, let me make up for that a little bit. You know how sometimes you read in like the New York Times or Scientific American or Discover, if anybody still reads that. I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that because I actually do buy it when I'm at airports. But you learn that some distant star has a planet, not based on being able to see the planet because it's too far away, but there's something weird about how the star moves, like the, the planet is, is messing it up somehow. So you deduce that there's a planet surrounding that star. Well, if you look at Book Bake, Strong Strength, Whole Health, Old Elder, Fall Fell, With all of them being pulled up to A like that, you know it's about a planet. What that is, is that there's something beginning with E that's coming afterward 
that's making it so that that vowel ends up being pulled forward to become an A in anticipation. It doesn't become an E, but that's what happens when you're saying oh, ah, oh, or something like that, and there's an E coming, and you kind of know that it's coming, and so you end up pushing up front and going A in anticipation of that E because everything gets pushed forward. So what that means is strong strength. If you go way back, the th was an ethu. The suffix was ethu. So you were saying basically, as it were, strong ethu. After a while, you know that the e's coming. You say strengthu, and then that is left as strength after a while. You say old. You say elder. That's because the er started out as this suffix ezo, which sounds like something you would like grease up your knees with. To <laughs> why would you grease your knees? But anyway, so old. And then ezo, ezo became ero, ero, but it used to be ezo. So oldizo, so to speak, eldizo, because you know the e's coming and the e is up there, up front, up high, and the o's back here, and you want to bring them closer together. Eh, eh, we're all going to come together, and it comes there. Fall and fell, same thing. It used to be that you said fall on. And then if you wanted to say that you were going to make something fall, you'd say fallion. Literally, fall, fallion, fallion. Well, if you hear that E coming, fellion. And after a while, the ending drops off and you've got fall and fell. You know, you could know that there had been an E up front in all of those cases, even if there was nothing in writing, even if we couldn't compare with other Germanic languages, especially old ones, we'd know that there's a planet up there that's pulling. And so all of those things are fossilizations of something that used to be a regular process. These things are perfectly normal. It's like the Cheshire cat disappears and leaves his smile. That's what linguistics is all about. Anyway, for the song here, because we're talking about telling, this is one where, you know, it's going to make some of you your skins crawl, and I'm sorry. This is 1956. This is written by Arthur Siegel and June Carroll for New Faces of 1956, not New Faces of 1952 for you fans of the genre. And this is the big ballad from it. Wasn't a good show, but I can just imagine that in rehearsals, people listened to this song being done and thought they had another hit on their hands. Frankly, it's a corny song. It's sung in what is now processed as a corny way by the wonderful John Reardon. And RCA's recording technique at the time was a little weird, so it sounds kind of boxy. But, you know, I openly admit with my unsentimental self that I think this is a beautiful song. And this is the only rendition of it I know. And so this is a song called Tell Her. And maybe some of you will get that I find it to be like a blueberry muffin. Here it goes. If your lady fair doesn't know you care, tell her, tell her. When in love you'll find she can't read your mind, tell her. she wants to hear tell her tell her your eyes cannot reveal all the wonders that you feel tell her tell her it's not hard to do 
More fossily kind of things. For example, Latin had a word for to tell a tale, which could be one of many words for to talk or to yak. Fabulare. Fabulare. Fabula, you know, a story. Fabulare, to tell a tale. And it's interesting what happens to fabulare as it goes through time into the world, into various languages. And it's interesting what can happen to it. The male anglerfish is this little thing that just grabs on to the female anglerfish who is like 25 times bigger than he is. And he just grabs on to some part of her body, sometimes her forehead. And pretty soon his eyes are gone, his muscles are gone. And all that he's there for is to provide her with actual material. And pretty soon he just becomes a bump upon her. Well, you know, fabulare has had that exact same process. And yes, that is true about the anglerfish. And when you eat monkfish, monkfish are a kind of that. You should go online and look at what anglerfish look like with the female, with these male bumps. So, fabulare, you have to tell a tale. And there are all kinds of things that can happen. So, for example, Spanish is hablar. That is when you get fablar, then f goes to a different hissy sound, h. And so, hablar, then the H drops off because H has a way of doing that. And so, you have hablar. So, hablar in Spanish, the habla, hablas, habla, that's like fabulare with some teeth knocked out. It's kind of like fabulare, and then a Looney Tunes character punches fabulare, and it goes, hablar, like that. But this is what I always think is neat about fabulare. Fabulare can also shorten to falar, and you can imagine how that goes. And that's what it is in Portuguese, Portuguese for to speak. You know, falo português, which I don't. I speak Portuguese. I do not speak it. But Portuguese is the basis of many Creole languages, as I've discussed on the show. And what happens is that for some reason that usually is a sociological catastrophe, a group of people with their own native languages have to learn another language very quickly. And because they're adults and they're being worked hard, they don't learn the language very well. That happened with Portuguese, especially in times of slavery. And what people do in a situation like that is that they have an incomplete Portuguese, but then they create a brand new language by mixing Portuguese with their native languages to an extent, and then also just taking all of that basic material and stretching it out and complicating it into something brand new. That happened in many places. One of them is a place that most of us have no reason to ever think about. It's called the Gulf of Guinea. It's off of the left coast of Africa, and there are some tiny islands in the Gulf of Guinea, such as San Tome or Principe. And these are places where the Portuguese had plantation agriculture and they had African slaves working there. And they created these brand new languages, which are Portuguese Creoles, but They are not a kind of Portuguese. They have Portuguese words and African words, and they just do their own thing. But it's amazing what can happen to original Portuguese material. So, for example, this dog is not black. This is the Portuguese Creole of Principe, Principense, you can call it. This dog is not black. Now, the word for dog is an African one, so Josolo, that is the word for dog. If you say this dog, you say Josolse. So not se josol, but josolse. 
this is an African trait to put the this afterwards. So it's Portuguese, but in African languages like Edo of Nigeria and Kimbundu and Kikongo of what is today Angola and Congo. So you have Josolse, and that is this dog, dog this, is not, nasa, so not is, black, petuf. Now, petu is the word for black. That's from pretu originally, petu. Now, what it kind of should be is Josolse, this dog, nasa, isn't petu, black. But you don't say that. You say Josolse, nasa, petuf. What's the... It's that there is a kind of a headphone way of making something negative in this Creole, just like French with the je ne marche pas, I not, walk not. Well, in this language, it's na, sa, petu, And so you have these two things. What's the f? The f almost certainly started out as to talk. It was fala, except in this language, it's fa shortened even further. So fabulare is in ancient Rome. Then here on this tiny island off of Africa, there are people saying just for not black, nasa petuf. And what it originally would have been is, isn't black, say. That's something that you could say. And after a while, people stopped thinking of it as meaning, say. And it's just f. So, josolse nasa petuf. And that f is something that originated as the whole word fabulare in Italy, where nobody had any idea that anybody would ever be using it as a negator and just having it be a f at the end of ordinary statements. Or this business of fabula itself. Fabula comes from fari. Fari in Latin is just to talk. Fari, one form of it in Latin, if you're talking about something that has been spoken, is Fatum. And fatum comes right into English as fate. Fate is that which has been spoken. But we're not talking about just fari. What's the bula? Fabula. Bula bula. What's that? Well, actually, it goes back to that there was, before Latin was Latin, this suffix, and it was vla. Vla, so you would say favla, and that became fabula. Vla meant kind of uj, as in acreage or shrinkage or something like that. And so you would say favla, and that meant kind of talkage or speakage. So when you say fabula, the bula is no longer a suffix. It's just a part of the word. But the bula actually contains this original la thing, and nobody would ever have thought it. And that la thing had different fates. Listen to this. We're going to take la back even further to that language of Ukraine. It was originally vlech. Then it becomes dle. Then it becomes del, because the e and the ul change places. So vlech, vle, drop off that hissy thing at the end. Then from le to del, then ter, because a d can become a t, and then an ul can become an er. So from del, ter, tar, tar, tor. It became tor. In English, as in eater, radiator, etc. So, blech, le, del, ter, tar, tor, tor, space modulator. So, it's Marvin Martian. L- listen. Where's the kaboom? There was supposed to be an earth shattering kaboom. The Illudium Pew 36 explosive space modulator. That creature has stolen the space modulator. So, when we say tor, 
in English. And of course, we get it from a whole different situation in Latin. But when we say that, it's the same bit of stuff which is plugged in the middle of a word like fabula in Latin. Of course, that language technically no longer exists, but we have fable. So when we go bull, the bull and the tor are the same thing. That's how language actually works. So you see, this is why linguists are so permissive about language change. If things like this hadn't happened, then the language I'm speaking wouldn't exist. And I can't say I mind that it does. You know, you have to listen to commercials during this show. It keeps breaking up. And sometimes it's me and sometimes it isn't. And you know, at the end of it, sometimes maybe like if you make a wonderful lamb pulao from a New York Times recipe, you keep finding that you don't have enough after you've eaten it. Well, you might want to have more show. You might want to have a little tag at the end. You can have what you want if you get what's called Slate Plus, because for a nominal fee, you can have a tag at the end of the show where you get more information. Plus, you don't have to listen to any commercials. Quite frankly, we need the nominal fee. You know what has hit the media hard and Slate is media. But more to the point, when you do it, you get more stuff no ads, and it'll be the same with all of Slate's other podcasts. So go to slate.com slash lexicon plus, and you get more plus less, as in, you know, fewer ads. So for example, if you want to know what happened when Middle English was left to its own devices over in Ireland, so that you have a whole different story, well, you've got to get Slate Plus to find out. I have something else about the subjunctive. You know how if you learn for example, Spanish, you find that there's this odd thing where to make a verb subjunctive, you have to put it into the other conjugation. It's the oddest thing from an English speaker's perspective. I used to know two guys, one of whom spoke very good Spanish and the other one who didn't happen to but had a good ear for language. And he would imitate the other one speaking Spanish on the phone by saying, lo tenga. And that was because the verb tener, to have, it would be tiene, for example, if you were saying that he has something. But if you have it in the subjunctive, if there's a chance that he'll have it, then there's a chance that he'll lo tenga, even though it's one of the eh verbs. And then it goes the other way around. Actually, talk about modern life, take it or leave it. Anybody who enters the store has to be wearing a, if you live in a neighborhood with a lot of Spanish, then that is cualquiera que entre, but the verb is entrar. But if it's subjunctive, the idea, if you're going to come into this store, you have to wear a, then it's entre. Well, you know, actually, English was kind of like that too, but we only know it through these fossils. And so, it used to be that English had a subjunctive, and the subjunctive didn't reverse things, but it just weakened things. The subjunctive lists were just kind of debilitated. And so, for example, with, um, I don't know, come. So, I come, you, thou comest, he, she, cometh, it was, and then we, y'all, and they cometh. That's what it was in Old English to kind of say it in Modern English. So, come, comest, cometh, cometh. Then in the subjunctive, it was just I, you, he, she, it, come, and then we, y'all, they, coming. And that's just all there was. So everything just fell apart. So you would say, you know, he, cometh, but then I'm wondering if there's any chance that he, come, like that. And so you just have this weak kind of thing. Come is interesting, actually. It used to be spelled C-U-M, 
but we won't talk about that. Although in a way it should be spelled that way. The reason that we spell come as C-O-M-E is not because of what you're thinking, because we also spell some S-O-M-E. It's really just some damned underoccupied idiot when society started stratifying mightily and leaving certain people with not enough to do. But in any case, that is why we say come what may. Shouldn't it be comes what may? What's this come what may? That's the old subjunctive. Or if need be, if it needs to be, that's a subjunctive need. Or something like be it as it may. What's that be? That be, it's certainly not infinitive. It's not to be it as it may. That's a subjunctive. So we don't have a subjunctive meaningfully in English at this point, except for people getting upset over someone saying, if I was king instead of I were king. It's so marginal. But it's in these little expressions that are fossilized where we see that we used to have a subjunctive that would have annoyed the foreign learner. This song coming up is a cabaret singer a cafe society singer of the middle years of the 20th century who went by the name of Hildegard. She is singing a song from a Cole Porter musical called Let's Face It, called A Little Rumba Numba. You don't have to know a thing about the musical to just enjoy the way she sang it here. She wasn't in the musical and the way it's arranged. I've always just loved listening to this cut while drinking a glass of wine or something. Little rumba number down Argentina way made him forget to slumber as through a dance she'd sway, singing ay 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 and he fell so in love that while the world would slumber, they'd hear the stars above singing ay 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 I've talked on this show about why the nickname for Edward is Ned. And so it starts when in English the word for my is still mine. So, if you're going to talk affectionately about Ed, you're going to say, ah, mine, Ed. Say that enough, and you're saying, ah, my, Ned. And especially when the word for mine is becoming my everywhere else, you're going to start hearing it that way, my, Ned. Mine, Ann. My, Nan. That's why an Ann can be called Nan, and so on. So, you end up having this floating N, and it's interesting Language always has like little chunks of DNA floating around. And in English, for various reasons, often it's N. So not only do you have the my Ned, but then you have something like an eft, some disgusting little animal, becomes a neft. And then sound change makes it a newt. 
Notice that if you do crossword puzzles, which is about the only way most of us know what an eft is, you know that it's that little salamander. It's the same thing as a newt. There's a reason. It's an eft or a neft. Or there used to be something called aches. You could carve aches into something. An ach, a notch, and so on. But there's another example of a stray n that solves a little problem that you may have wondered now and then, but you had other things to think about. And what I mean is this, 70, 60, 50, so like 5D, 40, 30, which is clearly 3D, except, you know, jacked up a little bit, 2D. Why not? What's twin? Why is it that? You know, wouldn't we expect it to be 70, 60, 50, 40, 30, 2D? But no, it's not 2D. It's 20. You know what that is? It's because Old English had things in three genders. And for two, the masculine form, which many people would have thought of as the default form, like if you ask somebody, well, what's the word for two? It was twain. Back then you pronounced it only once on this show. Twain. And so, twain, we have that word now as twain, although it's not really a word. We know that it exists and there's the author, but, you know, what the hell is a twain? But it used to be that it was one, twain, three, four, five. And so, when you're coming up with these things of 20, 30, 40, 50, where the T, as you might guess, meant a group of 10, well, what you're going to come up with for the two one is twain T. That made perfect sense. We no longer have meaningless gender in our language, as we discussed before, and twain ends up dropping out as a normal word, but people still say 20. Nobody changed it to 2D because you say numbers too much. Next thing you know, you have twainty. Now, where did that N come from? Well, there's some controversy over it, but almost certainly, if you ask me, and nobody did ask me, but, you know, I think if I were asked and I said this, nobody would throw a bucket of hot water in my face. The N was an overgeneralized plural. So think about oxen and children back when English had more ways of doing plural. It would have been very easy to, instead of just saying tway, which would have made sense in terms of how the language works, you're going to start saying twain, as in two things, especially because you use two so much. So it's kind of like you say mines because there's yours coming up. And so you say mines or you say yorn because you had mine before. There's that kind of bleed. And so twain would have made perfect sense as one form of two. And that's why you have 20. Now twain is gone. It's not really a word. My daughters are six and nine. Both of them know lots of words. I'm pretty sure they would just think twain was Elmer Fudd saying train. But 20 is a remnant of that. That's where that little N comes from. It's time for another clip. You're going to hear Dolly Parton. This is in the movie musical version of Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. I would say one of the top 15, and I'm not exaggerating. It was a wonderful movie despite being in the tacky early 80s, despite that Burt Reynolds and Dom DeLuise were in it. It was truly brilliant, beautifully scored. This is Dolly Parton and Chorus singing Nothing Dirty Going On. It's just a little bitty pissant country place Ain't nothing much to see No drinking allowed We get a nice quiet crowd Plain as it can be It's just a bitty squatting old time country place Ain't nothing too high Just 
us lots of goodwill and maybe one small thrill. But there's nothing dirty going on. Nothing dirty going on. We get simple farmers, local businessmen, Congress folks from Austin, young boys looking for sin. Now we used to get a lot of roughnecks when the old boom was high. But payday would get a little rowdy. Thank God the field run dry. It's just a little bitty pissant country place. Nothing much to see. No drinking allowed. We get a nice white crowd. Plain as it can be. It's just a bitty squat no time country place. So this is the way it is. And it's not only N that is often a fossil. Often in English, it's also S. Especially where S is at the end of things. There's generally a story about that S. That S so often was something else. And so if I say yes, yes starts out as, and I did this in one of the shows that I recorded back in 1952, so most of you won't remember it. But yes is yay, which meant so. And then the s started out as a c, which meant be it. It was a subjunctive form of to be, which is now completely gone. One of the only remnants of it actually is hanging on to the end of yes as this s. And so it was, yay, see, and that meant, so be it. Even our plural S. There is an argument, and I find it compelling. I'm getting this from Don Ringe, who's one of the super experts. I don't think everybody agrees with this, but it makes a lot of sense. The plural S, like we say hands and, you know, we say cats, etc. That came from somewhere, and almost certainly it was a word this, not specifically the word this, because it didn't exist in its current form, but basically a this cousin got shortened to s that we now use as the plural s. These things all come from somewhere and they become just fossils. Russian has a beautiful example of this, even though Russian is not a dialect of English according to most <laughs> analyses. Remember the show I did about that, that I've seen. So for example, in old Russian books, you'll have a servant you know, some scruffy person comes out and they'll say not just da, which means yes, but they'll say das. Like if you're not prepared for it, you wonder what it is. I remember when I first saw it in, in plays or, you know, I'm listening. Slushayu. Okay. Slushayu. But some person will say, uh, slushayus, And then what, what's sir? The sir was the word for sir or sire. It was sudar. Sudar. And so it used to be somebody would say, yes, sir, da sudar. Well, people talked a lot because there were a lot of Russian people and it's a very old country. So after a while, sudar is just, it's the male anglerfish. It's just uh. So das, slushaus. You find this, it's old. You find this in, in the, the 19th century. But that's another example of what can happen to a s. Uh. So all of this is about fossilization. When you hear a stream of language, you're hearing what long ago were whole words that are now being mashed together. Often one sound will have a history as a word or sometimes even a little phrase. So if you hear somebody say, did you eat yet? Well, that's did you eat yet? Then somebody says, yeah, let's eat it now. Let's eat it now. Think about how we're beginning to get whole new ways of using verbs. We're getting these prefixes, jeet. You know, the Martian might think, well, that's the second person, singular past prefix. Or, let's eat it now. You know, they don't know that it comes from let us eat it now, which we wouldn't say. Let's eat it now. It's hortative. It's just a hortative prefix. These are beautiful things. I want to go out 
this time on something kind of unusual, but very show toony. I'm not holding back this time, and I apologize to those of you who could do without, but I know some of you out there are enjoying this. This is from Showboat 1927. This is the Les Mis of its day. Showboat was very deep for the period, and it still is. This is a song from it that isn't done much now, but this is from a marvelous recreation album that was done in the late 80s. This is Queenie singing Hey Feller, and Hey Feller, I'm playing with Carla Burns doing the singing for the musicians out there. For you pianists, try playing this song without looking at music. It sounds like it's just some hi-ho kind of song. But wow, this has fun harmonies, especially for 1927. And also, for those of you who are just fans, dig this up online. It's easy to find. Listen to the verse part, the beginning part, which I'm not going to use here for time. And notice there's a great trick in it. This is Jerome Kern and Oscar Hammerstein. This is Showboat, 1927. This recording was released in 1988. This is Carla Burns singing Hey Feller. Hey Feller, I think you're swell. I took a look and then I fell. Hey Feller, I got to tell. Can't deny what you know well. I'm longing to be basking in your caressing right now. And if you do be asking, I'll do that yes in and Say Feller, I must admit that I suspect that you've got it. I'm yours to take, skip a little girl and even break. And if you love her, tell her, tell her, hey, fella. You can reach us at Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just to reach out, go to Slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. You know, by the way, my friend Jesse Scheidlauer, who wrote the book on the F word, by which I mean fuck. He has done a great many things in his career. The latest is that he's written a historical dictionary of science fiction. And it is spectacular partly because he's had the sense to put it online where he can always change it. And more to the point, it's easily handled. You can look at it on your phone. If you want to know where sci-fi words came from, written in a sprightly and authoritative way, then you must take a look at the Historical Dictionary of Science Fiction by Jesse Scheidlauer, which is online on your friendly iPad or telephone or laptop today. In any case, Mike Volo is, as always, the editor, and I am John McWhorter. And for your-